0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Evan Lieberman, author of the book Until We Have Won Our Liberty: South Africa After Apartheid. Evan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. It's great to speak with you today. Yeah, it's great to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. All right. Well, I'm
1: currently in Cambridge, Massachusetts in my office at MIT, where I'm a professor of political science in contemporary Africa. And I've been been at this for eight years, and I taught previously at, at Princeton for 12 years. Um, the, and Princeton's where I was an undergraduate and really developed my passion and interest for South Africa uh, during those years while I was an an undergraduate there. Um, I grew up in New York City in the 1980s, um, during a period when, you know, apartheid was being challenged and protested all around the world. And, you know, it was on my mind, uh, fair bit as a young person. Um, But then when I went off to college, I really had the opportunity to study it in more depth and traveled there for the first time in, in 1991. Um, and that really, you know, sparked my curiosity and I would say passion, um, for the place and for politics more generally. And so I went off to, to graduate school a few years later and, um, have, have pursued this career. So, um, here I am now and continuing to teach about politics and democracy, um, with a focus on Africa and South Africa.
0: Your book definitely demonstrates that lifelong uh, study of uh, South African politics and South African democracy as it's developed since the mid-1990s, what led you to write a book about South African democracy now? Well, I suppose it was a couple of things.
1: Um, You know, one was, you know, for whatever reason... We're, we're all struck by anniversaries. Um, as we're speaking today, it's my wife's birthday, something I wanted to mark. We mark, you know, ma- major milestones. And um, as as I was thinking in the around 2018, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of this really important milestone of uh, South Africa's first multiracial election what we think about as being kind of the the birth of, of real democracy in South Africa and um, you know as, as as you mentioned I've been I've been working on and thinking about South Africa for my whole career really my entire adult life and thought you know this is an anniversary I really want to mark uh, because it, it's it's a place that is so dear to me um, and, and that has been so much a point of my focus and um, but but more than that, you know, we were living in a time when, you know, democracy itself, um, which we can take for granted, um, or, or I had come to take for granted as a young person that this was the most important and, and 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 most valued institution for for how we would run governments around the world, that everyone would want it. Well, you know, it seemed to be unraveling right before our eyes, even in the United States. Um, and I think that that in various countries around the world, in Hungary, and Brazil, we saw the rise of um, populist leaders, and a lot of democratic norms and democratic institutions were coming under threat. And so I think all of us have realized we can't take democracy for granted. And um, you know I could have written a more general comparative book um, about democracies, um, and 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 their challenges um, all around the world. As some of my my friends and colleagues have, like uh, Daniel Ziblatt and, and Steve Levitsky, wrote this amazing book, um, you know, how democracies die. But I realized my value added was really going to be to focus on this one case, um, and and to think about how valuable democracy is. Um, but but I left open the question: is it is it valuable? Um, and and wanted to to force myself to really contemplate that question as I look back on the history.
0: It is a fascinating question to contemplate, especially in, in, in the context that you do so, because as you explained at the start of your book, you uh, pose the, the question you're, you're addressing in it is specifically, has the post-apartheid democratic project been successful? And I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by talking a bit about your thoughts about that and maybe explaining what that post-apartheid democratic project is specifically.
1: Sure. Uh, um, you know, the, the 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 punchline of the book to, to the question you just uh, uh Pose that that I pose in the book has has this democratic experiment been successful? The answer is yes, um, and 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 that turns out to be I think a controversial answer, or that I I think is not the conventional wisdom today among a lot of South Africans themselves and observers of South Africa, who in, in recent years have quite understandably focused on all of the challenges and problems that the country still faces. Um, some of which are, are, are new, some of which are the making of political leaders and people within society since 1994. Um, so South Africa has a lot of problems. Um, there are, you know, most obviously, there's a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of inequality. Um, and yet, the punchline of my book is that democracy has been successful. And you know, the reason I say that again, the the, the, the big contours of the book are to say, well, you know, how how should we evaluate democracy? Um, and I say, well, let's let's look at this country before and after this watershed election of 1994, and compare how the country has evolved on, on many different dimensions, you know, which, which again, I'm happy to go into in some more depth. Um, but when we look at what was compared to what has become since 1994, I think it's quite clear that, you know, the country is better off and the world is better off with a South Africa under this democratic project. And, Um, And and I say that both with respect to the history and with respect to the history of of other countries. Um, But when we talk about what was that experiment, um, it was several institutional transformations, right? Um, The most important one for the South African case was really extending the vote, the same vote, to everyone, irrespective of racial category, right? So when we talk about apartheid South Africa, what came before 1994 was a system of government that tried to legislate and divide everyone by racial category. Um, And and so although people of different race groups could vote, they were actually voting for different kinds of governments. They had very different rights and the only people who really had full citizenship were white people. Um, so, so democracy meant extending citizenship and the vote to everybody. Um, it, it meant writing a new constitution that enshrined you know, a set of, of progressive democratic values um, and, and instilling a, a human rights orientation in various institutions of government. Um, and it meant integrating a territory, right? We really, South Africa uh, was, was kind of one country that also had lots of different semi-autonomous, you know, basically illegitimate uh, separate countries that, that, you know, white political leaders had carved out um, for black Africans. And they had to integrate this into one unified country. But then also to to create some local governments within that. so it it was that transformation um, of of creating voting rights, creating strong uh, institutions that had a human rights orientation, and integrating the country that really was this experiment um, that that was initiated and really launched, I think, officially with this um, april nineteen ninety four election.
0: You talk about that election, but you you tell the story of South African democracy through an election that takes place 25 years later, the, the, the 2019 election in South Africa. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about South Africa in 2019, what the politics of it looked like, and then how it was that you chose to examine uh, South African democracy in action at the grassroots level.
1: Sure. So. You know the book starts off with this twenty nineteen election. and uh, to be honest, uh, I, I had originally thought that that would be the the last or second to last chapter of the book. And as I you know wrote the first draft, that's where it was. Um, but uh, you know the 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 insider scoop is that you know, along the way you're you're writing a book and you realize, wait, you know, what what comes last should come first because this is where we are today. Um, and and I wanted to be able to write a book that um, would speak to people f- from the perspective of today, because whether, you know, per- certainly for South Africans, I wanted them to be able to see a reality that they could relate to. Um, and, and for people who are less familiar with South Africa, to quickly get that view. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the 2019 election, I, I had thought, you know, as I said before, I was thinking about this 25th anniversary, and uh, you know, May 2019 more was going to be the national and provincial elections, um, and and that was just over five years scheduled for just over five years. Um, excuse me, just over 25 years since the April 1994 uh, election that that Nelson Mandela um, became president following, and. You know, I, I wanted to give a view of what people were talking about, what they were seeing, and and what they were thinking about. And frankly, for myself, even though I've been traveling to um, and studying South Africa, as I said for my whole career, I'd actually never been in the country during an election. And so I wanted to force myself to to see it. And so I um, I, I did a couple of things in the months leading up to the election, I, I visited this one municipality, which becomes the focus of the book, which is called Mahali City Local Municipality, which is centered in an old mining town called Krugersdorp. Um, and Krugersdorp is still the seat of government of this, uh, of this municipality. And so I went there and I you know, looked at the uh, uh, election speeches that various political leaders were making. Even local politicians, you know, the uh, elections, they are very much nationalized, even at the local level, they were talking about what was going on. Um, I started, you know, I was doing everything from listening to the radio, to watching TV, to interviewing people, to eventually going to campaign rallies. And, you know, there were a number of issues that were on people's minds. And again, you know, wouldn't lead you to think that this country is a particularly successful country. Um, because if you went and you saw signs, even the ANC, right, this is the African National Congress, um, the party of Mandela that's been leading national government since 1994, um, is, is you know, trying to make the case that it's going to finally provide more jobs and more economic growth. The challenger parties Um, are talking about getting corrupt politicians and leaders out of office um, and and generally being very critical of the fact that there's so much unemployment um, and 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 just frustrated with the quality of government and and things like the fact that um, there was load shedding, Um, the electric grid simply has not been able to handle all of the demands on it. And so South Africans have gotten used to the fact that they have these rolling blackouts, right? Which they call load shedding. Um, And so for a few hours a day, sometimes, several times a week at different times of year, um, people have to go without electricity either altogether or they have to switch on their generators. So it was a pretty fierce competitive uh, election cycle. And and these various parties ranging from the ANC to what was the lead um, political opposition, the Democratic Alliance, and then several other smaller parties we're all out there fighting, competing on a daily basis. And and you could see that even the ANC supporters um, were somewhat lackluster in their excitement and support for this party because they were, were, were also unhappy with the news that they were reading each day. Um, and, and that involved some major scandals, um, major uh, uh, evidence of corruption. There was ongoing um, concerns about former President Zuma, who, who uh, you know had had been been accused with lots of evidence of a lot of graft while in office, and this uh, group of this family, the Gupta family, um, who was very much involved in all sorts of government malfeasance um, in order to enrich themselves to you know an incredible degree. So. You know the the election campaign was fought, um, and it was you know I, I think really entertaining in some ways. Um, you know you, you 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 don't want it to be like a a television drama. These are people's real real lives, but it was unbelievable um, how um, how creative different political actors were in in being able to poke fun. Of of the ruling party and the ruling party really having to figure out ways to say, look, we get that we haven't done you know all that you would have liked of us, um, but really we're the ones who who can continue to guide you know the country towards a towards a better path going forward.
0: Now, I was say, I, I thought for me one of the most fascinating parts of your book was when you were interviewing. Uh, White voters in in that area, and 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 they were talking about how that you know they they were you know talking about how much how better off things were under apartheid and 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 that you know you could you know take for what it is and and but it's it's something that you know i don't want to say it's it, it's necessarily understandable but it's it you, you, you can see why some why some of them might feel that way but then they, they make that point about how well and then if you talk to you know the blacks they'll say the same thing too and then you and i i really thought i was interested because my, my my reaction was the same one that you described in your book which is like yeah right and then you do so and you find that a lot of Black people did say, you know, well, you know, things were, 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 uh, it, it were in so many ways better than, uh, uh under apartheid. And, and that really, I, I thought, did a, a great way of, of framing the, the question that you then go on to address, which is the value of democracy. And this gets to a, a lot of what you just described in terms of the, the, the problems that voters identify in South Africa today. This notion that, that, that it, you know the system isn't working. We have that there's corruption. That 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 services aren't being delivered anymore. That you know, the, sort of the basic things that we you know, expect of our government just aren't happening, and and, and that this is a factor that we see not just in South Africa but around the world. People point to as the reason why democracy uh, you know is 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 worthless or is inferior to a system that delivers. And, and you, but you then go on to talk about the value of democracy. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a bit, and, and talk about the, you know, why democracy has value, even when it doesn't necessarily deliver everything that that is expected of it by the voters. Thanks. I'll do that. I want to go
1: back to 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 one thing you said. You know, to to, to the, the 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 starting point of the question, um, and and the perspective of whites, because you know. It, one thing that's important is that I'm I'm a white man from America, and so the book uh, undoubtedly has that perspective um, built into what I learn, what I observe, and, and how I process things. Not to say that all American white men um, <laughs> would have done done the same uh, work um, on, on on this, but 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 I say that simply because. You know, over the years, for sure, lots of white South Africans have always felt very comfortable talking to me with their guard down, um, I think, to you know, just like tell me as if I'm going to be a sympathetic ear to say, "Ah, you know, these black South Africans have just messed up this beautiful country, right? They just they've 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 destroyed everything. Um, and it doesn't take much prompting or you know, kind of journalistic flair. To elicit this very basic outlook from so many white South Africans, and again, you know, you, you, they'll say, "I never supported apartheid," but what these guys have done is just a disaster. And um, you know, a, 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 as you point out, to to a certain degree, a lot of black South Africans um, have have begun to echo some of that language. Um, and you know and it was it was kind of shocking to me because you know obviously we think about apartheid as being you know maybe even worse than american style segregation um and so that that just seems to me to be you know to seem, seem to me to be improbable um n- nonetheless again both whites and black south africans um talk about the present and the recent past in a very uh, disparaging tone, uh, because there's a lot, cause there's a lot that they're frustrated about and these frustrating messages are circulated in the news, you know, in the media every day. Um, and, but, 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 but thinking about all that to your question, uh, about what is the value of democracy in this Diverse and potentially divided society. There's still the question: Well, well, how do we move forward? Um, and you know, democratic politics offers a society like South Africa, and frankly, you know, all modern societies, lots of really important opportunities. The the most important opportunity is to be able to select leaders and give input around public policy and binding decisions. In a, in a peaceful way that values everyone. And, you know, that really matters. You know, we can take it, take it for granted, but I know even, you know, on a university campus, um, which is you know not necessarily designed to be, you know, a, a democracy, faculty, students, staff, people want to hear their voices heard. They want to know that they've been able to give some input both because we all value being heard and recognized, but also because we all believe that we have you know, interests that, that deserve to be represented and that we have good ideas um, about how to make things better. Now, that doesn't mean that, that a democracy can give everyone everything that they want. Because some of these decisions are collective, and there's trade-offs, um, and obviously numbers matter. So, what, you know, it's not always a majority that gets to rule. And and you know, South Africa's democratic polity has lots of different institutions that make sure that there's not you know what one might call a quote unquote tyranny of the majority. Um, but but democracy affords this voice and input that is, is intrinsically important because, again, I think all of us want to be able to feel that that the important decisions, including about leadership, reflect the input of, of everyone who's a member of that community. And, you know, and that led me to think about what I, I think that democracy can yield. And I, and I, I, I come up with this term dignified development. And, and I say that because I think that this, this form of, of recognition and respect, um, is, is are intrinsic qualities of this idea of dignity that, that really matters. Um, because, we are all humans after all. And one of the problems, one of the great, you know, the the horrors of the history of South Africa before nineteen ninety-four, and even before, you know, the way way before the, the beginning of the apartheid regime, which really only started in nineteen forty-eight. This was a country that, you know, had, you know, hundreds of years of, of institutionalized white supremacy. And what I talk about as being indignities, right? Just real assaults on human dignity. Um, uh, leveled at people of color over time. That that democracy really is is designed to redress that type of a history by by valuing every human, giving them rights and and voice. Um, and that voice is at the ballot box. Um, but all, but in other areas as well, in terms of due process, in terms of the ability to um, you know, if, if if one feels that the Constitution is not being protected um, in in particular policies, you know, whether it's in terms of guarantees of education or shelter, that ordinary citizens can take the government to court um, and and to have those those uh, uh, rights protected. Um, and and to be able to force government to live up to to those basic promises. Um, so so that that dignity is so key. Now, I don't think dignity in the sense of being valued and being respected is is enough, right? I think it's it's necessary, but not sufficient for what we all want because I think, you know, to a large degree, You know, material outcomes are are also really important. And and in lots of ways, we can't separate dignity from the material um, because, you know, in in a modern society, um, like in South Africa, I think that for people to live without certain kinds of basic services, access to pipe water, to shelter, um, to sanitation, that's, you know, an assault on human dignity because we we have come in the you know by the twenty first century to to expect that those are kind of basic conditions that all of us are entitled to, right? That we live in a world and certainly South Africa is a country that has the resources ultimately to provide these to everybody. So again, I think democracy is well designed in its incentive structure, because it's it's ultimately a system that's about selecting leaders through competitive elections. Not only, but that's, that's a really critical part of it. And it provides incentives for leaders to, to, to try and act on these things, to try and make sure, uh, particularly in a country where so many people were poor, did lack these basic uh, uh, material necessities, um, not just because it was the right thing to do but because it was politically advantageous to make sure that they were delivering on these things so so to me the value of democracy is in providing you know is that is that it creates the right uh, institutions and incentives for generating this outcome that I call dignified development and you know it doesn't happen mechanistically um, and you know it, it, it's not a, a linear prog, Progress, and I wouldn't expect that you know everywhere where there's autocracy, if you know there's democracy, that you know you would suddenly get this outcome. But I think that that it's logically, you know, it, it the, the the it follows um, from the core tenets of democracy that there are a lot of incentives for promoting uh, this thing I call dignified development, and the case of South Africa I think really demonstrates. Um, that, that it delivered in these ways.
0: It's a demonstration that stands out, especially when you contrast it with apartheid, which, as you explain, is a system that is designed to de incentivize. Providing that for a large portion of the population. I was wondering if you could perhaps ex, uh, explain that contrast by describing apartheid a bit. Basically, how does apartheid uh, get established? How does it, how did it favor uh, certain groups over others? And, and how was that system which as 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 you've already uh, noted, you know, w- was seen in retrospect as as, as having delivered in, in in so many ways, even for the people who were uh, disenfranchised from it. How how it nonetheless uh, uh, came apart was it because at the end of the day, it, it it didn't deliver on that notion of 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 dignity for its people, or or were there other factors at play as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so as we know institutionalized white supremacy, you know, Southern Africa didn't have a monopoly on this, right. You know, European colonialism, uh, you know, European colonizers came to Africa and, 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 and ruled over peoples. Um, You know, we had race-based slavery in the United States um, in, in much of the world for much of, you know, the past several centuries, um, you know, People of color were really treated um, without any respect for their dignity. Um, what what was particularly unique about the South African case um, was in the twentieth century, as as this country formed, uh, you know, it formed actually following a, a, a civil war between white white parties. Um, between you know Dutch descended group called Afrikaners and and and, and British descended uh, uh, people, um, and they formed this Union of South Africa in, in 1909, and they really ended up forming it as a as a government for white people, even though whites only formed about you know 20 percent. I can't remember the you know exact uh, figure off the top of my head, but but around 20 25 percent. Of the population of the region um, at that time. And, you know, they, there were various ways in which uh, Black people were excluded and denigrated within towns, you know, were prohibited from owning property. But when the National Party came to power in 1948, they did so under this platform that basically said all these efforts that we've done to exclude Black people. Are not enough. We need to really go even further than that, and this is where South Africa really diverged from the rest of the world at the end of the you know Second World War, which kind of marked the end of you know the kind of the beginning of the end of, of empire and and uh, European powers coming out of Africa, and uh, you know the beginning of, of some important changes in the United States with the end of uh, you know eventual end of of segregation and Jim Crow over the next couple of decades you know the white south africans basically doubled down on this idea of exclusion and apartheid means apartness now it was it was posed in in you know in in terms that would that 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 you know abstractly could seem acceptable which was look you know everyone should you know should should have self determination and different peoples should have their own governments and states, right? And so saying that abstractly, you know, people certainly at the time could not and say, yes, you know, of course, we, you know, France is for the French people, you know, Germany is for the German people. And, and, and that's the way in which we organize governments around the world. But the white South African government was basically saying, uh, yeah. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take all of the different African peoples as they called them you know of different l- language and ethnic groups and we're going to put them into these homelands these you know small strangely shaped tracts of land that m- m- most african people really didn't think of as as their homelands and didn't really want to be relegated to but the apartheid project was to to s- say you're not south african you're a citizen of one of these other countries, um, and for those of you who are working to serve, you know, the white economy, y- you might live nearby in a particular township, but um, which is which is what kind of black and Indian and colored, which are the other other race groups um, in South Africa, uh, were called. You're going to live in these places, but you're going to have curfews. You're going to have to only shop in certain stores. Um, you know, different laws are going to apply to you. Um, when it comes time to getting jobs, you're going to get different wages. Um, and perhaps, you know, to me as an as an educator, you know, the the, the gravest injustice of all was um, this Bantu Education Act, right? Bantu's so, term to describe people but really it was me- me- meant to be you know bl- black africans and the bantu education uh, act basically restricted the kind of education that black people could get right so they couldn't not not to become uh, uh sophisticated critical thinkers but only to prepare them to do the kinds of labor and work that would benefit white people so you know that, alongside just economic inequality, were just these grave indignities, um, and it was an entire government designed in every way to perpetuate this with laws and legislation, including something called the Immorality Act to to you know not allow sexual relations between people of different race groups and to register people from different race groups, um, and you know these are the just horrific kinds of laws that you know white government leaders of this apartheid government were promulgating and enforcing quite proudly as if this was some kind of a you know morally valuable project and you know for for white south africans you know in material terms they really benefited um, right they they managed you know by having a very large and low paid labor force alongside a you know some you know the, the world's greatest mineral treasures were able to develop um, a highly profitable mining industry um, and some other industries as well um, and to generate lifestyles that were on the level of you know, Americans and Europeans and, you know, people in in all the wealthiest countries for this small minority of the population. So it was really, uh, uh, you know, a project that created and reinforced, uh, these incredible levels of, of inequality. And so when we think about, um, you know, what has the end of apartheid meant? Well, you know, that race-based inequality in large part you know, is still very palpable and recognizable, but millions of Black South Africans now free to do everything from being heads of government to being local counselors, to running corporations, to starting businesses, to living wherever they want to live, to participating and, you know, actively engaging within society, within business, within government, Um, for millions and millions of Black South Africans, you know, they they live with a pride, dignity and level of material resources um, that that were largely unthinkable under that prior regime.
0: I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, broaden the focus now from South Africa and, and talk a bit about the lessons that this uh, that this experience that this past quarter century has for the. Uh, the world when it comes to democracy and the concept of dignified development? Because it seems that South Africa really, the experience of South Africa in this period does have a lot to teach us.
1: Yeah, I think, I, 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 I think for me, the most important lesson is that democracy and these positive outcomes are possible to attain even in the most difficult of circumstances. Right. That, you know, w- w- people ask the question, people long ask the question for Africa. And in fact, many African independence leaders in the 1960s were not too keen on democracy because they said, "Ah, oh, we're, you know, we're too diverse of a society. You know, w- w- we really just need a strong leader to keep everybody in line. Right. Um, and in, in, in other parts of the world, I think about in the Middle East, you know, the divide between, you know, uh, uh, Jews and Palestinians and Arabs um, in in Israel, um, where there's concerns, we could never, you know, m- make a single democratic state, you know, truly together. Um, you know, it it it's worked in South Africa. It, it's not that everyone, you know, it's not that everyone is happy, um, a, a, as we as we talked about, you know, earlier, um, and that everyone gets what they want um, exactly, but. They, you know they've managed to do it and, and and different people's groups you know their interests get are represented and you know and progress is possible when things don't go right and I think that's a really important important part of democracy is that when things don't go right, people are able to speak about it and complain about it and and you know and government oftentimes not always, but response. Um, and and I provide lots of examples in the book of, of where that happens so to me the most important lesson is that that we we, we shouldn't give preconditions we shouldn't say that oh you know th- this type of democracy is only possible in a you know Scandinavian country where everyone looks the same and, and, and it's about the same I think it's hard I think, I think, you know, clearly a lesson that we've seen in these 25, you know, now it's coming closer to 30 years, um, is that there are, there are a lot of challenges, um, in, in, in maintaining democratic rule. And, you know, if you ask me to predict is South African democracy going to stick around forever, you know, I certainly say no, because I think that there's a, a lot of concern and tension. Um, but I think that that, you know, is it, something that we just need to keep in mind, um, as we look at different parts of the world where groups, um, are, are in conflict with one another. I, I think that there are more, uh, you know, uh, precise lessons, um, in looking at some of the institutions. And I think two, two sets of institutions that, that I'm impressed by in the South African case, um, are one, um, this this system of proportionality and proportional representation um it really seems to have worked right it seems to have worked that people in this country in in south africa vote for parties for instance and the number of seats that the party gets is is in proportion to the percentage of votes um rather than to like what we have in the united states which which we commonly refer to as a winner take all system, um, and I say that because in a in a diverse society, um, I think it's really important that that people from different perspectives see their representatives present in legislatures and in government offices in some proportion to you know, their their size within the population. Now, what's interesting here, and what I think is really positive about the South African case is that that proportionality has shifted around over time. It's not just that, that these parties are mere representatives of ethnic or racial groups, you know, they've really transformed into parties that represent ideas and values, um, but and, and, and also some reflection of identities. Um, so I think, Proportionality is a really important institution um, that 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 could and should work in lots of other contexts. And then, you know, and then the second is the the human rights orientation of the, the constitution in South Africa and and of the government more generally. Um, I think that that you know enshrining and protecting the notion that we are all human and we are all entitled to certain basic conditions of treatment, not just the most minimal, you know, kind of protection from a, you know, a, a, a brutal state, um, but that everyone is entitled to, to certain types of social and economic rights, things that when, when, you know, the South African constitution was being written, I think some people and perhaps even myself were skeptical of, you know, kind of thinking, ah, you know, can you really guarantee, you know, Education and water, you know, to, to everybody. And while it's still the ca- case that the, the realization of these rights is somewhat aspirational, right? That that not everyone has these things. A democratic constitution instills a society with values about what's right and what's wrong, and it's wrong for you know people to be deprived of these basic human conditions. And and so I think that that. Having, you know, kind of a a level of political competition that allows people to see themselves, but also some protections of some minimum guarantees for what it means to be a human part of the the human community um, are, are really important lessons for all of us.
0: Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Thanks. Well. You know, I continue to think about and to study South Africa, um, and and I'm doing some research on on local counselors in in South Africa and understanding how they uh, uh, are are affected by and affect their their local communities in in precise ways. So um, that's an ongoing project. I'll continue to be a student of South Africa, um, but I've uh, I've begun working on you know the existential. Problem of of climate change uh, here at MIT. It's been um, you know there's been a, a huge initiative to try to get all of us to focus on the climate emergency, and I've taken up that call, um, and I'm thinking about how in diverse societies um, how can democracy be you know an, an agent for change and democratic governance, um, both to try to reduce the amount of carbon we put into the atmosphere. But also to make sure that 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 people from different communities around the world, particularly in 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 unequal places like the United States and South Africa, can adapt to the the climate, you know, the changing climate in ways where everybody kind of has has some protection and is able to to lead a decent life, despite the fact that that we see so many um, you know really challenging uh, um, transformations in in the global climate.
0: It sounds like an exceptionally worthy project. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Thanks, Mark. Evan, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. Same to you.